Great to be with you all this morning. I'm really enjoying the series that we're in. Uh, For some of you, maybe you just got past the holiday hump of summer being over, Labor Day being finished, and you're coming back. And uh, we started a series a couple weeks ago around this idea that the concept of missions is not just meant to be an action of our church, that missions is actually part of our God's character and his nature. That we don't serve a God that sits up on a chair and Bosses all of us around, we serve a God that came down into creation and is still pursuing the heart and soul and mind of every single living human being. That he would search after them and seek after them to do what? To restore them back in the relationship with his father. And in turn then rebuild creation, bringing order, fixing it once again. That that we have not joined a happy, clappy self-help group when we say we became Christians, but that we actually joined a mission that's led by his son Jesus we follow Jesus into every area of, our, area of our life. And while some people have felt called to be career missionaries, traveling to distant lands, learning different languages, packing their belongings in pine wood boxes as the old missionaries had once done, many of us maybe aren't called to be career missionaries, but we can all live as missionaries in our different kinds of careers. That we can become lifestyle missionaries, taking the mission of putting people in touch with God and bringing that beyond these walls into our workplaces, into our university campuses, into our neighborhoods, into the the golf that we frequent, into the places that we hang out, eat, into the coffee shops, the parks we bring our children, that we are awake to the reality that Jesus is on mission around us and he beckons us to join him in that mission. So then we started last week with the idea of, so what does that mean? Because that kind of changes then how I've been praying and how I've been reading my Bible or if I've been reading my Bible or how I do church and how I approach my culture and how I bless people and how I think of the world. Like, I guess all that changes if I live in that understanding. And we said, yeah, that's why we want to practice some new ways of or some new perspectives on those old things that we've done. That we need to practice how we pray and practice how we read scripture, but now doing it in light of mission. My daughter, when she was about four years old, decided she was going to be a singer. And every time she sang and tried to hit high notes, I could feel the glass in my house about to explode. And I was like, oh, my gosh, she's a terrible singer. (laughs) But as a father, I did all great fathers did and said, honey, it's amazing. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) But as the years have gone on, actually, she's actually gotten better because she kept pursuing, kept practicing her singing, and her sound got better. Now at eight years old, we don't cringe when she starts singing. We can actually listen to it. It's actually kind of pleasant because she's practiced, and we will never be perfect. Jesus perfects our faith for us, but we practice it. We we practice that. We, We become better at it, and so we mentioned these different practices, and last week we talked about the idea of prayer as something that we practice, but practice not in the religious way, but practice as a way of praying expectantly, that God's already around us, the kingdom has already come, the price has already been paid, the debt has already been wiped out. We, are, we have access to everything of the kingdom, not in any more real moment than the moment we're currently in. That we can wake up every day going, God's kingdom is around me. I can be actively pursuing it, awakened to that reality. That we would pray expectantly, not religiously. Then this morning we're going to do the second practice and we're going to focus on one of the other great elements of our faith, which is scripture. And we're going to talk a bit about scripture and its role in our lives, its role in society, because ultimately we don't want to become people that just learn and memorize scripture so we can give people short answers about our faith, but we want to actually be people that learn it so we can live it. That we would live scripture 
to those around us. So next practice is we want to live scripture. Human beings, and you might attest to this by looking at your accounting to realize you go to see movies all the time, because human beings love stories. In fact, we love stories so much, we we look for stories that we can be found in. Because we understand the power of story, and in our heart, we have a a desire to be found in some type of story. Maybe you're tired of your story, so you watch a movie to check out on your story to get caught in someone else's story. Because your your story is just too troublesome in the moment. Because stories are a big part of our lives, and we love story. And I believe that we have a propensity towards story, because our God loves story. And that's why 85% of our Bible is made up of story. So we love story. And, And actually, I would submit that marketers have figured out that human beings love stories. And whenever they try to sell us products, they do it by trying to sell us not the product, but a better story. Probably the one national holiday that we all celebrate, which is called the Super Bowl, if you didn't know that. <laughs> it's, it's <clears throat> last football joke, I promise. It's the one thing that we watch on TV together where while the game's going, it's kind of loud, but we're all talking and hanging out. But then eventually someone always yells, shut up. Why? The commercials are on. <laughs> and that's like when everyone really pays attention to what's going on. Right? Everyone's like, oh, wait, oh, Buffalo, what's, what, what, what's going on? And we watch the commercials. Why? Because we're looking for the new commercials that are coming out. And oftentimes the highest rated commercials that people love are many times commercials that barely use any words. That they do such good storytelling in their minute or minute or less than a minute that they have that we're captivated by that story. And then what do we want to do? We want that product. The guy walking down the beach with a 15-pack of abs, his shirt off, glistening biceps in the sun. And he stops, looks at the camera and pulls out a toothbrush and says, buy my toothbrush. (laughs) And you're like, what the heck do those abs have to do with that toothbrush? And then we all leave there going, I'm going to go buy that toothbrush because I don't know what, but maybe it works. Because I want, I want that story. I'm tired of this story. I want that story. Because humans love story. We're looking for a new story to be found in. I would submit this morning that this story is the greatest story ever told. I would say that this story is not even just a story for Christian people. I think the audacity is in this story claiming that it's the best story for all humans. That every human will be lost trying to figure out the questions of where did I come from? Who am I? What am I supposed to do? Where am I going? That no story will be adequate enough to solve those answers, to give them those answers to those questions than this story. That this is the story for all of humanity. And all of humanity will only find themselves in this story. That's what's crazy about this story is that it claims that to be true. Now, I've felt that's true for my life as someone who's come from broken families, difficult situations in my life, never having met my biological father. I've had a hard time solving those answers to those questions like, who am I? But because of this story, yes, who am I can relate to my DNA and my physical makeup, but it's not just that because now I'm part of this story. And this story helps define who I am because not only do I have an earthly father, I also have a Heavenly Father. And I've tried to raise my children in that as well, giving them an understanding of finding themselves in this story as well. Encouraging them and talking through, yes, your dad is Puerto Rican and Italian from New York City. Your mom is Korean American from Seattle. But really, while that's important, let me tell you the bigger story. And that's this story. Then your son comes home and says, Dad, what does it mean that I have immeasurable value because I'm made in the image of God? 
And you sit down, you try to explain it, and he responds, I don't get it. And you say it again, and he goes, I don't get it. And you're like, oh my gosh, I'm a horrible teacher of this story. <laughs> and you try to explain it to him because, of course, a six-year-old's not going to get it. But son, don't worry. Let me show you what that means. Let me show the fruits of our life because we have a value of this story within our lives. Thinking of that, actually, immeasurable value. This story gives us even that idea that humans have value. That humans, that there is a sanctity of life. That we were actually created in the image of God. And because we were created in his image, he says, I value your human flesh. You carry my image. You are to bear my image. That gives you tremendous value as human beings. And that idea is called the sanctity of life. In fact, why don't we look at it? Genesis chapter 1. If you have your Bibles, you can open them to verse 26, going to verse 31. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. that God would say human beings are valuable because I've created them and now they bear my image. That, That life is valuable. Life is important. Now, I know when we read this, we go, yeah, Matt, we understand that. We, we get that in America. We value human life. We're discussing that a little bit now. What is human life? But, but for general, we, we value that. We don't want to kill somebody and these kind of things. But that idea hasn't always existed. In fact, pre-Reformation, many people, many of the barbarians in Europe and their Norse gods and their different ways of worldviews, they didn't have that same value. In fact, some of them believe that we were just spiritual beings passing through physical flesh and the flesh had no matter so you could take other people's lives through human sacrifice and a variety of other things. That, that idea of the sanctity of life actually wasn't mainstream at the time until a guy named Martin Luther came on the scene, studies the scripture, realizes, man, I as a monk, I can read Latin, but other people need to find themselves in this story. The people of Germany, these poor people, they need to find themselves in this story. And it's not adequate enough because they don't know how to read and write. So what am I going to do? And so what he did was he translated the Bible into German so the common people could begin to read it. And what was that? That began the birth of the Reformation. And what happened? That was the birth of the modern man moving from a barbarian society to a modern idea that human life actually mattered. Where did that idea come from? The Bible. Now, as that spilled forward, it changed everything because if human life mattered and we could think for ourselves because we're made in the image of God, then education mattered. And guess what? Many of the Ivy League universities in America were started by who? Missionaries. And then the sciences came about because if this God that made us in his image designed everything and we can use our minds to to discover design, we can study the idea of the sciences. And then the laws of nature were identified. And then the idea of law came in, of order, and the idea of compassion came in. That all these ideas came in from that one thing that God said, you are made in my image. I would submit to you that the world we live in was developed by the ideas found in this scripture. But... In our cultural moment, there's an assault on these scriptures. You might have seen this with the Harvest Crusade recently. 
the viral video that went of Greg Laurie on the news because while they put an advertisement in Fashion Island, people were offended of the fact that he was on this advertisement holding a black book. Not even that the book had a cross on it. Not even that the book said the Holy Bible. But people saw that as offensive that he was forcing on them his worldview and people complained so much that they removed all his billboards in Fashion Island. Because it was offensive to me. Because how can you say that about the Bible? But this is the crazy illogical thing. The only reason why you have the ability to complain in our society is because this Bible said humans' ideas matter and we should respect each other's ideas. And that came from the very Bible now you're wanting to get rid of. That's the illogicalness of our current cultural moment. What seems more illogical? All of a sudden, throwing out the book that shaped the world we live in because a couple people got really creative on podcasts and Facebook or choosing to believe in something that's existed for thousands of years. And they would say, well, Matt, it's illogical. How could you ever believe in this? It's so old. It's so outdated. And I'm saying, yeah, but don't you know that truth is tested over time? And we can sh- I can show you that this, the ideas in this Bible have shaped societies for thousands of years. In fact, if you look at the Human Development Index, the HDI, the study of nations where they're at as far as people's wealth that they make, their health care, the quality of life, the top 20 nations found on the HDI, sorry, the top 15 nations found on the HDI all have been touched by the reformation of the ideas from Scripture. This isn't something that we just handle and throw to the side because we've determined it's old. It actually takes more faith to believe in that we should throw this out than to actually believe it actually is true. So scripture is valuable. Scripture has built the society that we have today, though we're in a cultural moment where that is an assault on that. But what I want to encourage you and inspire you in this morning is the idea that scripture is meant to be learned so you can live it. That you should learn it to live it and that when you live it, you're going to learn it. And that we need to be in an understanding that Scripture is not something that we should just memorize to puff our knowledge up, to give us really good debates for people on Facebook and Snapchat and Instagram. But that Scripture is something that we learn so we can adequately let it shape our life. And I would submit to you that it's going to shape our lives in a variety of categories. The first category I want to address this morning is that it should shape the way you view the world. That Scripture should shape the way that you view the world the world. Now, one of the critiques that people say is, Matt, you know, this Bible, you say it's so special and so cool, but gosh, when you read it, it doesn't even make sense. Like, I know my grandma has one. It's black, and it's propping up the table, her card table that she uses when all her friends come over to play at nighttime. But it's, other than, other than propping up that table, it's got no use anymore. Like, what, what, what and, and honestly, Matt, there's so many errors in it. And I'm like, well, what do you mean errors in it? Well, look, you, I mean, I mean, you got four stories about the same guy named Jesus, four Gospels, and none of them can get their story straight. And I'm like, well, yeah, you can't read it like that because the Bible was not written to us. It was written for us. That God inspired men in specific situations to write down these words, stories or pieces of truth, to specific people that were in certain circumstances in a culture thousands of years ago, and they weren't thinking that we would be living and talking about it nowadays. They weren't writing it, thinking about us, but God, in his inspiration, inspired them to write into that setting truth that would be timeless. 
So if you look at the Gospels, for instance, there's four of them, kind of telling the same story. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all called the synoptic Gospels. A synopsis of Jesus' three years of ministry and his one Passion Week. You might say, well, yeah, there's mix-ups there and they do different things. Well, yeah, because each one's written to someone different. Matthew sat down to write the story of Jesus specifically to all his homies that were Jewish. Because he was trying to tell him, hey, this Messiah that we've talked about actually was Jesus. And when you go to the Gospel of Matthew, you'll find more references to Old Testament culture and Old Testament law than any other gospel. Why? Because Matthew's writing the story in a form to let all his Jewish homies know Jesus was the Messiah. Mark, his gospel, super short. He was in a bit of a panic mode. Mark was recording the gospel, probably with the voice of Peter in his ear as one of the disciples, to people in Rome. And at that time, these Roman Christians were living about 30 years after Christ, were going through massive persecution. And it's most likely that Mark sat down to write down the gospel to these persecuted Christians saying, hey, you're dying for Jesus that wasn't a conquering king on a hill, but actually was a suffering servant. And he puts different illustrations in there that would apply to them, like the idea of Jesus dealing with wild beasts. And no other gospel talks about Jesus dealing with wild beasts, but guess what? At that time in Rome, Christians were dying at the mouths of wild beasts. And Mark wanted to say, listen, the Jesus you're dying for, this Messiah, he also faced wild beasts. He also knows your pain. And then Luke, he sits down to write his gospel to a guy named Theophilus. We're not sure that's a code name for the underground church. Most likely it's probably some Roman general or or important person in the Roman government. And he's trying to let him know, along with the book of Acts, in all of his letters to say, hey, this is what the kingdom of God looks like. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, while similar, are actually different because each one's written to a different person. We have to look at the humanity behind Scripture, knowing it's inspired by God, but real people in real situations living it. And of course, then there's the Gospel of John. And that one just messes the whole stinking thing up. John flips everything around. All of a sudden, Jesus only does seven teachings. And all of a sudden, he's only doing seven miracles. And he's flipping around the timing of when Jesus goes into the temple compared to the synoptic gospels. Because John was writing to an audience that was very different than the previous three audiences. See, John was existing during a time and writing his gospel when the Jewish church had kind of weaned. And now the church was growing primarily amongst the Greeks. You and I, the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people, the people that don't really understand what the Messiah really was because we weren't raised reading the Torah around the dinner table for most of our life. So John's looking at society going, man, this is a different group. We're reaching different people. The Greeks are coming in. The Gentiles are growing. But they don't fully understand the gravity of the Messiah because we get it because we're Jewish, but they don't get it because they're not. So John sits down and goes, man, if they could get this, if they could understand who Jesus was, if they could get themselves grafted into this story, it will shape the way they view the world. It will change the way they view the world. So John's thinking and he's looking at their understanding and their belief system. And at that time, Greeks had an idea that everything that was physical was bad. All physical matter was evil and wasn't good for anything. And everyone was trying to climb a spiritual ladder to this ultimate spiritual reasoning. And so they would do all these different things in worship, cutting their bodies, starving themselves, drunkenness, as they would go to the temples. Because in that heightened pain or drunkenness, they would receive secret knowledge. And this secret knowledge would give them the ability that when they eventually pass, they would climb the spiritual ladder and get to this ultimate reasoning. And guess what that name was? Lagos. Now you've probably heard that term, not in the Greek concept, but in what? The concept of who Jesus is. In John chapter 1... John is going to blow the minds of the Greeks by telling them 
That this Lagos, this one that they're all trying to climb to, this one that's untouchable, this one that would never come down, touch their flesh because was, he was so good and so full of reasoning and understanding and had no value for the physical flesh, he's going to give them a new twist on that understanding. Because in John's mind, actually that Lagos didn't stay up there. That Lagos actually came down here. If you have your Bibles, you can open with me to John chapter 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, the Lagos already existed. The Lagos was God, and the Lagos, wa- the Lagos was with God, and the Lagos was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The Lagos gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. And he's saying, listen, this creation that you think is so bad, this creation that you think has no worth, guess what? That Lagos actually created it. And then he goes on to say, guess what else? He stepped into it because that Lagos became flesh. And you know what he did? He walked among you. He spoke with people. He taught people. He shared all his wisdom with everyone. And then guess what else he did? He died, rose again. You know why? Because he destroyed the ladder that you think you need to be climbing. And instantly, every Greek would have been like, now we get what Jesus is all about. Instantly, it would have totally changed the way that they view the world. Almost overnight, they would have woke up going, oh my goodness. So then if he existed here and he lived amongst us, then everything has value. Everything around me has value. It's not about trying to escape this world. It's about being present in this world and actually about me doing something for this world. And I believe it was when by them grabbing that concept, them having their world understanding completely shifted, that brings the gospel to us today. Because had the Greeks not grabbed hold of the power of Jesus and spread that out to more Greeks and more Gentiles, it would never come to us now thousands of years later. So the Bible is meant to shape the way we view our world. The Bible does not have error in the overall theology of what it's communicating. It has no error within it. It all flows together. If we think it has error, it's maybe because we're trying to think it's written to me, and it's not actually written to me. It's only written for me. And I need to put my feet in the sandals of people back then to see how they would have understood it. It's a fascinating book written over over 1,600 years, 40 different authors, yet everyone's singing the same song. How does that happen? Well, because it was inspired by the living God. Abraham Lincoln says the Bible is the answer for all man's problems. Another great theologian said the Bible is like reading letters from home. That our ultimate home is with the Father. Our ultimate home is in a different age. And this, that age inspired people in this age to write stories to tell us how we're meant to live, how we're meant to view the world until we get to be home with the Father. Second thing I think scripture is meant to do is it's meant to shape the way we define our identity. Now, you may or may not know this, but they've done some studies on adolescents and young people trying to figure out who they are and where they came from. And they've now discovered that the new adolescent age is the mid-30s. Oh, my gosh. Some of you are like, that's right. My son's still living at home. Son of a man. If you're that son, I'm sorry that I just said that. I... And in their researching this, they found that most, while most Americans have struggled in this area, there's two groups of people that actually haven't struggled as much in this area. It's Jewish American young men, young men and women, and Amish American young men and women. 
And as they researched, they began to find out that these young people graduate. Okay, now again, I know that there's reality TV shows about the Amish. We're not talking about those people, okay? <laughs> just, let's just forget those ones right now. Um, but they've discovered that the reason, the thing that, the, that both Amish and Jewish families did is they found that every single one of them, at a minimum of three to four times a week, they had dinner around the table as a family. While they had dinner, the Jews pulled out the Torah, the Amish pulled out the Bible, and they allowed for questioning and dissecting of that story. And they found that because they did that, by the time their young people turned 18, guess what? They had found themselves in the story. And they didn't struggle with, who am I? Where did I come from? Where am I supposed to go? Because they had found themselves in that story, weren't trying to find a different story to find themselves in, and it shaped their identity. We should not shape our identity by the things we identify with, like the clothes we wear and the cars we drive. We need to allow the story of God to tell us who we're meant to be. So this scripture is meant to shape our view in the world. This scripture is meant to shape the way we define our identity. And lastly, this scripture is meant to shape how we live in the world today. I would adventure to say that the reason why there's an assault on this scripture in our current cultural moment is because all, I don't say all, majority of time, we've spent more time talking about the scripture and less time living the scripture. And because of that, we've become known more for what we're against rather than what we're for. And not only that, because of that, we haven't had the opportunity to fully understand it and we've not given an adequate, gentle response to people about the value of Scripture. And we've gone over-emotional, defended it, entered into Facebook debates, Twitter debates, when that's not the model Jesus set for us. What was the model Jesus set for us? He came down and was the flesh of the living Word of God. He stepped into the culture. He moved into the neighborhood. That we would become people that would learn scripture so we can live scripture and give a proper representation to people around us. This is what my God believes. This is what I believe. This is how it's shaped my life. Don't believe what I'm saying. Watch how I live. And that people would look at us and go, wow, I don't know what story you're lined up with. I'm not sure what you believe, but I can tell you what. I don't have that in my life, and I want to be a part of that story. And we go, well, come hang out with me and let me show you the story. And when I need to, I'll tell you as well. Because scripture is something that God didn't give in a way that doves flew from heaven with gold scrolls in their mouth and dropped it. And people said, look at these gold scrolls I found. No, scripture was touched, tagged to humanity, brought into humanity. That Jesus wouldn't just speak from heaven, but he would come and live with his life. And say, this is the way you're meant to be human, by living my father's scriptures.